You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com The leadership of a great nation hangs in the balance, my friends. And even now, decisions are being made behind closed doors that will influence the course of the world's finances and geopolitics in the years to come. The people have been told that their votes have a play a part in this grand election, but no one really believes it. The real leadership decision is being made behind closed doors, in secret, with zero transparency by a self-appointed elite. Am I referring to the American election farce that is playing itself out even as we speak? Of course I am not. Although I suppose all of that does apply to the American election farce equally farce equally well. But I am in fact referring to a completely different leadership transition in one of the, I suppose, most important nations on the earth in the way that uh, the current economics and geopolitics are lining up. And that is the world's largest nation by population, China. And for those of you who aren't keeping track, and, well, I guess you can be excused for not keeping track with all of the incessant Rombomni-Obomni coverage that's been going on recently, but for those of you who aren't keeping track, the Chinese ruling Communist Party will begin its 18th Congress this Thursday, and it will begin the process that will start the leadership transition in China, which everyone believes has already pretty much been decided. Everyone understands that Xi Jinping is likely to be the next leader of China, the next president of China. But there are still some questions about what's going to happen that are up in the air. And for those of you who have, like myself, never deeply looked into the whole leadership transition process in China, it is a rather fascinating thing to look at, and at the very least, the people of China know that uh, their votes don't matter and that the whole idea that uh, China is a democracy is, of course, a joke. It's certainly not a democracy. There is no uh, democratic input. There is no way in which people can have any influence whatsoever on what happens there. But uh, but I guess people in America haven't quite cottoned on to that fact, or at least the majority of people. I'm sure my listeners probably are more aware than the general public, but there you go. Well, let's uh, let's start looking at some of what's happening in China in over the next couple of weeks as this leadership transition plays out. Let's break down some of the things that are actually happening there and uh, and what is likely to play out from the different scenarios and... Oh yes, if we must, I suppose we can keep track on what is happening in America at the moment with the two-way dog and pony circus sideshow that passes for an election. And if you want, absolutely, uh, you can phone in with your stories of why you did or did not vote, who you did or did not vote for, what you think or will or will not happen in terms of the American leadership race, or if you have an opinion on the Chinese leadership race, I'm, of course, interested in hearing that, too. The phone lines will be wide open for the next hour of radio transmission, 1-800-313-9443. You can get in and on the air with your two cents, and I'm always willing to hear that. But tonight we are going to be breaking down the the tale of the other selection process that's taking place, the one that's a little bit more 
transparently a selection and uh, a little bit more detached from the idea that the people have a say. Although, interestingly enough, supposedly, this is all part of a decision-making process that really starts at the grassroots level and starts with the people, so I guess there really are some interesting similarities and echoes of what happens in the American selection process going on there in China. But as I say, this is starting on Thursday, and it's a weeks-long process that... Well, the end result has already been basically chosen, but some of the uh, twists and turns that will happen along the way are still up in the air as the 18th People's Congress gets underway in the People's Republic of China. Ha ha ha. The Democratic Republic of China. Well, let's, uh, let's start detailing that process and coming in with some of the details of what's going on there. But first, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue breaking down the tale of two selections on tonight's edition of Corporate Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are, well, we're getting away from the American selection process that has, well, really very little significance on the course of the uh, the two-headed hydra that is the two, two-party electoral system in America, and concentrating on a completely different, well, really one-headed hydra, but it's a question of which head and how it will rule in the uh, the People's Republic of China, where just this week as well. Uh, coincidentally, in a mirror image of what's happening in America, the uh, the Chinese uh, leadership is also up for grabs. Although it's not really a question of who's going to end up in the president's seat, but there are still some different twists and turns in this election process. So for people who don't know, let's just start breaking down some of the, the facts about how this uh, this leadership transition takes place in China and what really happens there. And it is a very interesting process, and we can get at least one perspective on this from Yahoo News, Why Not?, which had a recent fact box on understanding China's 18th Communist Party Congress, which, as I say, begins this Thursday. And it talks about the agenda and how this basically plays out. So, first of all, the five-yearly Congress selects about 370 full and alternate members of the party's elite central committee, in a session lasting about one week, drawing from a pre-selected pool of candidates expected to be only slightly larger than 370. So, step one, the five-yearly Congress, elected every five years, elects about 370 full and alternate members of the elite Central Committee. Step two, the new Central Committee's first session, held the day after the Congress ends, so that would be next next Friday, theoretically, not this coming Friday, but the Friday after, uh, then selects some two dozen members of the decision-making Politburo, again drawing from a list of candidates already selected by the party's leadership over months of political jockeying. So coming next Friday, theoretically, would be the start of the Central Committee's first session, and they will select from the pre-selected pool of candidates who will make it to the Politburo, the Politburo being the uh, the central apparatus of the Communist Party, as it were, there in China. And of course, the Communist Party is the only party, the only game in town. So it's important who gets onto this Politburo. Next, the new Politburo Standing Committee, the party's top echelon of power, which currently has nine members, will then be unveiled after the one-day Central Committee plenum ends. So... If I'm doing the math correctly, that would theoretically be next Saturday. 
It is widely expected to be shrunk to seven f- seven members, facilitating decision-making needed to push through key reforms. A series of other appointments will also be made over the Congress period, and in some cases before it. These include provincial party chiefs and governors and heads of some state-owned enterprises. And Vice President Xi Jinping is set to take over as party general secretary from President Hu Jintao at the end of the Congress. She then takes over as head of state in March at the annual full meeting of parliament. So this is a transition process that, again, like in America, where it, it, the next president doesn't come in until January, here we have a process where the leader, who seems to have already been selected, will officially come into power as head of state next March, but will be at least appointed as the next head of state officially during this week-plus-long transition process, election process, selection process, whatever you want to call it. So once again, it's uh, there's quite a few different stages involved here and different aspects of what's going on. So let's break down some of what's being talked about there. So for example, we have uh, the the mention of the Congress, which is selected every five years in, well, actually, believe it or not, direct elections that start at the bottom level of the actual people of the um, of the People's Republic of China, and. The, I'm not sure to what extent those uh, those elections themselves are anything more than a farce, but uh, at any rate, supposedly, the theory goes, the people directly elect the membership of the People's Congress, and that happens once every five years. And then every subsequent level of the link in that chain, up the way the cha- in the chain of command, is elected by that body itself. So, for example, the uh, the People's Congress then goes ahead and selects the the uh, the membership of the the uh, Central Planning Commission, the Politburo, and then the Politburo selects the the chief, the commander, the president, as it were. So this is a process that, again, it's coming from pre-selected candidates, obviously, so there's not any huge surprises or upsets in what happens in any stage of this process, but it's still somewhat interesting. So let's get a slightly better grasp of what's going on here and what uh, each level of this, I guess, stage of, uh, of selection consists of by turning to, well, why not? Let's go to Wikipedia for the basic facts about what each level of uh, this this stratum consists of. And there's a page, Elections in the People's Republic of China, that I'll direct your attention towards, where it talks, for example, about the uh, the process itself. It says, elections in the People's Republic of China are based on a hierarchical electoral system, whereby local people's congresses are directly elected, and all higher levels of people's congresses up to the National People's Congress, the National Legislature, are indirectly elected by the People's Congress of the level immediately below. The Constitution does not specify how deputies to the People's Congresses of the autonomous regions, autonomous prefectures, and autonomous counties are chosen. So that would, of course, apply to uh, to Hong Kong and uh, other autonomous regions where they select their own candidates in their own elections. But for everywhere else in China, people are uh, electing people to the People's Congress, which you may have seen uh, examples of. Once in a while, they'll show a vote in the People's Congress, which is really just more of a... Uh, a rubber stamp ceremony. It's it's a bit of a farce, really, and which is why they, I believe, only meet once a year um, at the annual parliamentary uh, congress, which happens in March, as as we talked about earlier. 
Uh, it says, while universal franchise is guaranteed in principle by the Constitution, in practice, the Communist Party of China maintains full control of the entire electoral process. Surprise, surprise, it's all pre-selected from the beginning. Well, let's talk about some of those layers of what we're talking about here. Again, there are different levels of, uh, of what's happening. So, for example, there are the village chiefs, which are directly elected by the people, so, theoretically. And it says, uh, since taking power in 1978, Deng Xiaoping uh, experimented with direct democracy at the local level. Some townships and urban areas also have experimented with direct elections of local government leaders. Villages have been traditionally the lowest level of government in China's complicated hierarchy of governance, and in the early 1980s, a few southern villages began implementing vote-for-your-chief policies, in which free elections are intended to be held for the election of a village chief, who holds a lot of power and influence traditionally in rural society. Many of these elections were successful, involving candidate uh, debates, format platforms, and the initiation of secret ballot boxes. The suffrage was universal, with all citizens above age 18 having the right to vote and be elected. Such an election comprises usually over no more than 2,000 voters, and the the first-past-the-post system is used in determining the winner, with no restriction on political affiliation. The elections held every three years are always supervised by a higher level of government, usually by a county government. So that's an interesting aspect to the elections, but only applies to the very, very lowest stratum on the uh, the totem pole, as it were, of Chinese electoral politics. And every other level of that is uh, very strictly controlled, including the selection of the Nation's People Congress, which again comprises of uh, 3,000 to 3,500 members who are elected for five-year terms. And their deputies are elected by the People's Congress um, of the country's 23 provinces, five autonomous regions, and four municipalities directly under the central government. The executive uh, is, again, broken into different strata, and it it itself consists of different membership uh, parties and, and affiliations. But one of the most important is the Politburo Standing Committee of the Communist Party of China. And this is really the the inner decision-making body of the Communist Party, which, of course, holds power and and always does in Communist China. And this is where a lot of the the alchemy of Chinese politics goes on. I think there's a process whereby these nine or seven, or the number varies, but these people get together and through consensus, they come to different decisions about how to run the country. But it's uh, not at all clear to outside observers how that process works. Currently, I can tell you that the uh, the leadership consists of, of course, uh, Hu Jintao, who is the general secretary of the Communist Party of China Central Committee. He's also the chairman of the Central Military Commission. He's the president of the People's Republic of China and the chairman of the Central Military Commission. But... uh, be, uh, second in command of the Politburo, if there is a hierarchy here, is uh, Wu Banggao, Banggu. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, so you'll forgive my poor Chinese. But he's the party secretary of the standing committee of the nation's Pe- People's Congress and the chairman of that committee. So that is the second in command uh, position, theoretically, in this Politburo. And the third is Wen Bao, who is the party secretary. He's also the premier, the, the prime minister, as, as it were, of, uh, of China itself. So those, those are the three top-ranking officials. There are, uh, at present, six more officials on that Politburo. 
but uh, seven of the nine who are currently sitting will be uh, rotating out either just through rotation or through uh, through stepping down for retirement. So there's going to be a massive shift in the Politburo that actually makes decisions in China. It's going to be quite a huge leadership uh, transition, uh, at least in terms of the, the changes that are likely to occur, even if those changes are, for the most part, mapped out in advance. So we'll continue going through what some of those changes are likely to be and the types of changes we're likely to see coming from the Chinese government in the course of the next several months because of this uh, leadership transition. But again, if you want to get in, 1-800-313-9443. We can even talk about the American electoral force farce going on right now if you want to. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. As tonight, we are trying to parse the vagaries of Chinese electoral or selectoral politics and finding out what's going on in the leadership transition that will determine the fate of the world's most populous nation in the, well, 10 years to come as the leader is appointed to a 10-year position. And of course, for the past uh, 10 years, we've had Hu Jintao in at the realm, at the helm and at the reins of the Communist Party of China. And under his leadership, China has become the second largest economy on the planet. So it has been, uh, I think, a significant stretch of time for Chinese and people around the world. And it's important to know who the next leader will or is tipped to be, as they say, and what the likely consequences of that are going to be. So as I say, the uh, the number one position, the president of China, is to a large extent decided well in advance, and I don't think anyone expects that it will be anyone other than Xi Jinping, who has for some time been tipped to be the next leader of China, and has been basically performing in a role as such for the last well, few years, kind of getting ready for the the big leadership transition. And so he's been doing a lot of, uh, well, diplomatic work, for example, touring the United States last year, or was it earlier this year, and, uh, and other such things. But um, there was also an interesting period just a few months ago where he was not uh, appearing in public for a couple of weeks and canceled uh, appointments with a number of very important diplomats, including... Her Hillary herself, uh, Secretary of State, State Hillary Clinton, even got snubbed by uh, Xi Jinping during this period when she was on a state visit to China. And it was very bizarre, and there was a lot of speculation about what was going on. Some speculation about his health, perhaps his back, was a problem, and... Eventually, he appeared in public to say, no, no problem, I'm just uh, just taking some time off, or something to that effect. It was a very bizarre little period. So again, there is so much opacity to what's happening at the ty- highest levels of Chinese leadership that it's very difficult to, to know what will uh, really take place during this leadership transition, or what uh, particular chocolate we're going to get from the box of chocolates to bring it down to the Forrest Gump analogy. But uh, whatever the case may be, it should be an interesting few years as things start to unfold and we may or may not see drastic shifts in Chinese foreign policy that might have a direct bearing on some of the things that we've been covering here on the program, including what's happening in Syria, because, of course, China has been one of the stalwart holdouts on the uh, Security Council that has been basically blocking the more... Uh, well, trigger-happy members of that Security Council who would just love an excuse to go in guns blazing to somewhere like Syria. 
and China and Russia have been holding out. Well, we'll see what uh, the new leadership of China thinks un- under these types of circumstances when he is formally put into power next March. But at any rate, the leadership transition, as I say, taking place with the beginning of the 18th People's Congress this Thursday, and that being a week-long process which will elect a central committee, which will itself appoint the, the, the Politburo Standing Committee, which will be the seven, expected seven people who will really be at the helm and in charge of Chinese politics for the next several years. This is the core group of people, and once again, at the very top of that is expected to be Xi Jinping, and under him, his designated deputy is expected to be Li Keqiang or Keqiang. Again, I can't really pronounce uh, these uh, Chinese names, so I'm sure I will become familiar with that in the course of time. But let's start breaking down some of this and what it might mean from, uh, well, why not Rothschild's Reuters uh, has this story up, um, hot off the press. Cautious reformers tipped for new China leadership. And it says, quote, China's ruling Communist Party will this month unveil its new top leadership team, expected to again be an all-male cast of politicians whose instincts are to move cautiously on reform. Sources close to the leadership say 10 main candidates are vying for seven seats on the party's next Politburo Standing Committee, the peak decision-making body which will steal the, steer the world's largest, second-largest economy for the next five years. Only two candidates are considered certainties going into the party's 18th Congress, which starts on Thursday. Leader-in-waiting Xi Jinping and his designated deputy Li Keqiang, who are set to be installed as president and premier next March. Of the remaining eight contenders, only one has the reputation as a political reformer, and only one is a woman. Following our short biographies of the candidates, including their reform credentials and possible portfolio responsibilities. So first talking about Xi Jinping, his reform credentials are that he is considered a cautious reformer, having spent time in top positions in Fujiang and Shenzhen provinces, both at the forefront of China's economic reforms. Xi Jinping, 59, is China's vice president and President Hu Jintao's anointed successor. He will take over as Communist Party boss at the Congress and then as head of state in March. Xi belongs to the party's princeling generation, the offspring of communist revolutionaries. His father, former vice premier Xi Jinping, fought alongside Mao Zedong in the Chinese Civil War. She watched his father purged and later, during the Cultural Revolution, spent years in the hand-scrabble hardscrabble countryside before making his way to university and then to power. Well, the uh, the little mini-biography goes on from there, and we will pick it up from there after the break. Let's take another short breather, and we will be back to talk more about some of these figures who are going to figure prominently in Chinese politics in years to come. Once again, if you have any thoughts or comments on any of the selection processes taking place anywhere around the world right now, 1-800-313-9443. And we'll be back right after these messages. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support.
All right, friends, welcome back. We are here on Corbett Report Radio, and let's continue talking about Xi Jinping, who is slated to be the next leader of China after this selection process gets underway and gets finished in the next couple of weeks. So continuing from that biography from Rothschild Reuters, married to a famous singer, Xi has crafted a low-key and sometimes blunt political style. He has complained that official speeches and writings are clogged with party jargon and has demanded more plain speaking. She went to work in the poor northwest Chinese countryside as a sent-down youth during the chaos of the 1966-76 Cultural Revolution and became a rural commune official. He went on to study chemical engineering at Tsinghua University in Beijing and later gained a doctorate in Marxist theory from Tsinghua. A native of the poor inland province of Shanxi, she was promoted to governor of southeastern Fujian province in 1999 and became party boss in neighboring Zhejiang province in 2003. In 2007, the tall, portly Xi secured the top job in China's commercial capital, capital Shanghai, when his predecessor was caught up in a huge corruption case. Later that year, he was promoted to the party's standing committee. So that is likely to be the next leader of China, barring some bizarre, unforeseen circumstance, and his projected second-in-command is Li Qi. Qiang. Again, I'm going to go with that pronunciation for now. And he is seen as another cautious reformer due to his relatively liberal university experiences. The vice premier, 57, is the man tipped to be China's next premier, taking over from Wen Jiaobao. His ascent will mark an extraordinary rise for a man who, as a youth, was sent to toil in the countryside during Mao's Cultural Revolution. He was born in Anhui province in 1955, son of a local rural official. Li worked on a commune that was one of the first places to quietly revive private bonuses in farming in the late 1970s. By the time he left Anhui, Li was a Communist Party member and secretary of his production brigade. He studied law at the elite Peking University, which was among the first Chinese schools to resume teaching law after the Chinese Revolution. He worked to master English and co-translated the Due Process of Law by Lord Denning, the famed English jurist. In 1980, Li, then in the official student union, endorsed controversial campus elections. Party conservatives were aghast, but Li, already a prudent political player, stayed out of the controversial vote. He climbed the party ranks and in 1983 joined the Communist Youth League's Central Secretariat, headed then by Hu Jintao. Li later served in challenging party chiefs' posts in Liaoning, a frigid northeastern Rust Belt province, and rural Hainan province. He was named to the powerful nine-member standing committee in 2007. So that is likely to be the premier and uh, the number two, as it were, in the standing committee once this leadership selection shakes out and everything starts to take shape. But what does this really mean, and who are the? what are the real forces that are at play here? What are the real options on the table for the future of China? Is there likely to be any dramatic shift at all? And if so, in what, so what manner of uh, directional shift are we, are we talking about? Well, obviously, we will have to forego the Wikipedias and Reuters and other such sources for something, well, approaching more uh, bias, anti-biased, more balanced approach. And for that, we'll, we'll turn to geopoliticalmonitor.com. And for people who don't know, Geopolitical Monitor is a uh, is a very reliable source of information on geopolitics. 
I uh, used to do a monthly conversation with uh, some of the writers and editors there. Uh, not so much anymore, but still, I do look at Geopolitical Monitor and the articles that they put out. They have some good editorials. And one that just came out is from Zachary Fillingham of uh, Geopolitical Monitor, and it's on the next Chinese government, conservative princelings or reform-minded twin pai. And it goes on to say, the next rulers of China will be revealed this week, but a clear picture has yet to emerge as to whether the new Politburo Standing Committee will be dominated by the Xi Jinping princeling faction or the Communist Youth League Tuang Pai clique that has rallied around outgoing President Hu Jintao. Whichever it is will have a decisive impact on the next 10 years of Chinese government policy. Early reports suggesting that the Standing Committee will will be reduced to seven seats for the Xi Jinping administration seem to be ringing true ahead of the 18th Party Congress this week. Over the past 60 years, the makeup of the Standing Committee has fluctuated to include anywhere between 5 and 11 members, and the number of available spots is a critical factor given that decisions are reached via consensus voting. The Standing Committee under Hu Jintao was increased from seven to nine members due to irreconcilable differences between Hu Jintao and then outgoing President Jen Jimin as to who should make the cut. Consequently, the regime was often unable to build the consensus required to push through bold new economic and political reform, a shortcoming that earned it a fair amount of criticism from outside observers. But now that the standing committee is being scaled back to seven, high-level policy will be less prone to obstruction, and the Xi Jinping administration will have a freer hand to put its own stamp on Chinese society. This leaves us with two important questions. Who will be on the next standing committee? And perhaps more importantly, what policies will they pursue? The pool of potential candidates can be divided into two broad categories, the princelings that have family links to the first generation of CCP leaders and the Tuanpai, or communist youth leaguers, who orbit around Hu Jintao. Many of the princelings are protégés of former President Jiang Zemin, a, pr- a figure who continues to exert considerable influence on the Chinese political process at the ripe old age of 86. There are two members of the current standing committee that are guaranteed to keep their seat, Xi Jinping, princeling son of Xi Jinjun, and the next president of China, and Li, Li, Li Keqian, Wen Jiaobao's successor who rose through the ranks of the Communist Youth League. As for the remaining five seats, the New York Times has tipped Zhang Dijang, links to Zhang Jimin, Wang Qishan, princeling, Zhang Gaoli, links to Zhang Jimin, and Lu Yunshan, links to Zhang Jimin Tuanpai. The last available spot is being fought over by Li Yanchao, uh, princeling with Tuanpai background, and Yu Zhenjing, princeling. This narrow field of candidates suggests that the fall of Bo Xilai, himself a prominent princeling, will not tip the scales towards the Tuanpai faction in the new standing committee. Quite the contrary, it looks like the princelings and Zhen Jimin will cast a large shadow over the new go- Chinese government one that, again, will benefit from a streamlined decision-making process. Zhang Jimin's ongoing influence on the highest levels of Chinese politics is one factor that will steer future policy in a more conservative, less reform-oriented direction. In addition, it looks like some of the more reform-minded candidates have not made the final shortlist for the standing committee, candidates like Wang Yang and Liu Yangdong. In the past, princelings have generally favored a more conservative and closed approach based on high levels of state involvement in the economy, or Bojilai's Chongqing model. 
most of them have amassed considerable family fortunes within the current system and are thus hesitant to increase the pace of political and economic reform in China, especially when doing so risks exposing the role of graft in the building of said fortunes. Thus, a standing committee that is dominated by princelings should not be expected to forge ahead with a bold reform agenda unless a crisis breaks out and forces its hand. But a crisis is exactly what it might be faced with because the Xi Jinping regime will be expected to resolve a litany of socioeconomic issues that have been left to simmer during the policy stagnation of the past decade. The economic recalibration away from a high-employment, low-cost, export-oriented economy to one that is powered by domestic consumption and high wages must occur sooner or later, and when it does, there will be a lot of Chinese workers who lose out. How this social and economic transition is tackled stands as one of the central questions surrounding the Xi Jinping administration. Once again, that's by Zachary Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com, and there are some important points to tease out of this article about what it says about the coming years of China, and also some of the similarities and differences from the American selection that's taking place. But speaking of the American selection, we have Andy in California on the line to talk about what's going on there. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in California. Andy, thanks for the call. Well, this is Andy in California. I'm the CFO of uh, the Coalition of Living Disabled because the dead couldn't make it. And our issue is judicial transparency. Uh, one thing that all forms of government inherently uh, share in common is that the few uh, possess discovery, and the many suffer at hand of that. And we're moving forward in regards to modernizing the third branch of government by putting in a CD or a DVD recorder in the courtrooms, saving the taxpayers millions of dollars, and... Uh, Eventually, I hope to be the host of America's Funniest Courtrooms on Friday night. And uh, because if you don't have judicial accountability in whatever form of government is, the executive branch will have no accountability or the elective branch of government or military branch of government. It all goes haywire. And we're just a group of people who have dyslexia, walking with our tape recorders and say, you're being tape recorded for quality assurance and equality under all laws is paramount and this is the main spring for the progress of we the people. And as of yet, we have gotten a, not a yes answer from any individuals who allege to represent we the people. Well, that's a good so, point. Uh, of course, it is, a three part, it is a three tripartite uh, uh, government uh, structure. And of course, the judicial is, is supposed to be one of the big checks on the executive power and, the, and what the uh, legislature is doing. So it is important. And it does raise the question of why on earth would we not have uh, recordings in every courtroom in this technologically advanced society? Exactly. And if you consent to not having that, you forfeit discovery. And when the state owns discovery, they own everything. And you can't move forward for the people with uh, any actions because uh, you're in a conundrum with a democracy instead of a republic where the society inherently arguments themselves and can't move forward, kind of like the Senate and the Congress. Exactly right. Well, how can people find out more about this idea? Well, I'm functionally literate. I can get Dory on here. My whole issue is I'm functionally literate, and I just go on my tape recorder, and it tears down the corporate veil, and I attempt to take kids on uh, field trips to the board meetings with our tape recorders, and just ask that simple question, and as of yet, we can't go out to board meetings with children from middle school. Do you have a website? Right? Do you have anywhere people can get more information? Dory, could you get over here? I, I'm going to get Dory on here. Her name is Dory Paul. 
Okay, we're going to have to hang up on you, but we will uh, talk about that on a night where we are talking about judicial reform. But for the moment, we're talking about the uh, selection process in China. So thank you for the call, Andy. It uh, was good talking to you. Well, let's continue talking about this uh, this article that we just read about the next Chinese government. And, uh, and I think it's important to tease out some of not only the similarities and differences with what's happening in America, but some of the, the long-term ramifications for what's happening with the Chinese leadership. Because the, we can see the broad outlines of the narrative that's being formed here about the direction that China is heading. The last 10 years has been really a remarkable change in terms of Chinese society and the economy. And a lot of that is through uh, vagaries that cannot, I think, be solely heaped at the doorstep of Hu Jintao. But uh, certainly he was overseeing that process as the president of the Standing Committee, the Politburo Standing Committee. So it has been a a remarkable period of transformation and obviously the double digit growth in the in the Chinese economy in terms of 10, 11, 12 percent GDP growth rates per year just simply cannot be maintained. So we have seen that fall back in recent years to as low as now 7 percent. And it looks like if not, the wheels are coming off of the Chinese economy. There are some numbers that have come out more recently that have put some people's fears to rest on that regard. But at the very least, certainly it is cooling down a little bit and uh, things are getting a little bit more, um, well, hairy, as it were, because, of course, the Chinese economy has been based uh, almost exclusively on exports and on manufacturing for foreign companies. But as the global economic meltdown continues and as euro uncertainty continues, obviously China is, uh, well, less able to depend on that constant demand for manufacturing and for uh the exports that they're that they're producing, so this really is starting to really raise the question of how China can start to increase its domestic consumption, and what that's going to start doing as the, this starts to become less of a country that's absolutely obsessed with selling things to the outside world and starts to think about how it's going to start selling things to its own people, and with this, of course, comes huge almost unthinkable types of social transformations going on in a country that has well over a billion people. And uh, a lot of those people coming from absolute, the the lowest ranks of poverty to to people who are starting to approach, well, basically developed country standards of living, certainly in some of the the cities. So it is a, a remarkable transformation. It's going to have huge effects on on everything imaginable from resource consumption to to the environment the the extraction and use of these resources and uh, and we've seen that in various ways as for example uh, as china starts to to consume more milk it starts to lead to milk shortages in other countries and i think we'll see that phenomenon playing itself out in a number of different ways so it is going to be, I think the next 10 years is going to be the question of how to deal with the incredible growth of the last 10 years. And that's going to be the key question for this Xi Jinping administration. And as that Geopolitical Monitor article points out, I think quite well, it's definitely a, a, a question of how the the makeup of the standing committee, which is the core nucleus, the seven people who are going to be basically ruling from behind the scenes, how they interact and what type of agenda they have. And uh, as that uh, article also makes clear, I think it's going to be a lot of people who are 
very much connected to the the inner ruling elite and the past ruling elite of China, the uh, uh, Zhang Zemin's and others who are casting their long shadow over this process. These princelings who are connected to the what is becoming more and more sort of the the traditional hierarchical family to familial type lines that tie these people to the first generation of Communist Party leaders, well, this, of course, creates a type of ruling class society, which we always know that these types of central command economies generally devolve into. So it's interesting to look at all of that and all of the political calculus that goes into that, and then contrast it to what's taking place as we speak in America, where the selection is taking place between Obama and Romney. And I think it's interesting to note that it is very much in many different ways quite analogous to what's happening in China right now. We have the election which is taking place, which theoretically chooses the leadership, but as we know, the Obama, the Romney, the the Bush, the Clinton, the whatever puppet is nothing more than a serviceable puppet to the powers that are ruling from behind the the throne in organizations of power like the CFR, like Bilderberg, like some of these other organizations that work Uh, Not only with uh, people in the United States, but people around the world in a coordinated global government agenda. And it's interesting to see how it's it's a very similar process that the real decisions take place in this uh, clique of power behind the scenes that you and I don't have much access to. And we have to sort of scry the tea leaves and look at some of the connections of some of the people and some of their family connections and, and their histories, etc., to try to imagine how things are going to play out. And it's a, obviously a uh, an imperfect process at best. But interestingly enough, I think that people who are engaged in this type of process probably have a better understanding of what's happening in American politics and what's likely to occur than people who are obsessing over who's going to, uh, which uh, D or R is going to take Florida or or New Hampshire or Ohio or any of these battleground states. That is so far off of the political calculus, it's not even funny. So let's come back to wrap things up and put some conclusion on all of this after these messages. If you're looking for a change, you might try another place. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is the final moments of tonight's broadcast as we broadcast you live here on Tuesday, November 6th, 2012, a.k.a. Decision Day, Election Day, Voting Day, whatever you want to call it there in the United States. And as I'm making the case tonight, it has just about as much significance as the elections to the uh, People's Congress there in China, which is to say very little at all. And if we just step back for a moment to reflect on all the things that are not going to change, no matter who gets into power tonight, it uh, it really puts things into perspective, because all of the things that were completely and utterly, utterly neglected during the uh, the presidential debates are the very things that, of course, will really, in a true sense, decide the future history of the world over the course of the next few years, including, for example, the uh, the ongoing bailouts of the banks and the ongoing regime of too-big-to-fails, which, uh, again, neither Obama nor Romney have any interest in challenging, both being heavily sponsored by Wall Street, and uh, it's a question of which puppet Wall Street would prefer to have in power. Uh, the foreign policy of these two, well, there's not much difference that I can see. Of course, uh, Romney puts a lot more 
uh, heat into his rhetoric about Iran and his uh, support of Israel. But uh, when push comes to shove, I have absolutely no doubt that Obama will back up Israel and anything that they tend to do against Iran which is more and more likely as we head into the next four years, and it's uh, almost inconceivable that something won't be done about the Iranian nuclear program coming up in these next few years. So uh, that will probably occur during the next presidency. Something will occur on that front, I'm sure. And uh, again, whether it's Obama or Romney, I can't imagine either one is going to be uh, backing away from helping out Israel in whatever it wants to do. Uh, the drone strikes, the illegal, unwarranted uh, drone strikes that have been basically branched out to all sorts of countries that the U.S. is not officially at war with, but which it is secretly at war with, including Somalia and Yemen and Pakistan, will continue apace under both Obama and Romney. And that was made very explicit during the so-called debates when Romney was asked of his opinion of the drone strikes, and he said, well, they're great, and we probably need more of them. So that has been enshrined into uh, into basically foreign policy of the United States. Uh, domestically, of course, the NDAA uh, 2012 and its provisions for indefinite detention, assuming that they survive the legislative, uh, sorry, the judicial challenges that they're under right now, and assuming no one comes along with any legislation that would challenge those provisions, well, uh, that will probably continue to uh, to be cemented and hardwired into American law. There is some hope that there are some amendments to the 2013 NDAA but that might change that, but again, that's still up in the air. And, uh, and basically, all the other aspects of the police state will continue apace under either an Obama or a Romney. So the question over uh, of the course of America over the next several years is not the question of whether it's a D or an R in the position of the Oval Office. It is a question of Basically, the people behind the scenes, the banksters and their cronies in the de facto secretive world government that are the real issue. And once again, if we understand their connections, who they are, how they connect together, we will have a much better understanding of where American politics is heading than whatever plays out in tonight's election. And uh, similarly, again, a lot of what's happening in China is pretty much a foregone conclusion, and the selection process is mere trappings and window dressing on top of that. So that's tonight's episode of the broadcast. Once again, for people who didn't catch, uh, the, there is no podcast uh, for the rest of this month until the end of the month, as I will be uh, attending a conference in Malaysia, a war crimes tribunal that I'm going to be covering for GRTV and Boiling Frogs Post later this month, so I'm getting prepared for that. So no uh, podcast and no Friday night editions of this radio broadcast until the end of the month when I will resume things as normal. So if you're waiting for that, you can stop waiting. And on that note, I will be back in 23 hours from now with another edition of this radio show. So until then, thank you for listening. Take care.